The Lord's table is a very special and important ritual in the local church and for the local church, and it is for everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ritual that has reality is ritual that teaches through symbol significant doctrinal points. We go back to the Old Testament. There were various rituals that were conducted in the tabernacle and the temple, rituals that involved sacrifice, rituals that involved cleansing, rituals that spoke of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ritual has reality in two ways. First of all, because of what it is communicating in terms of truth about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ or perhaps the uh, spiritual life of the particular dispensation involved. Second, it has reality because there is something real on the other end. Religions that are not based on the Bible and do not, are not based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross are not based on reality. They are simply activities that are, that engage the emotions or the, or appeal to the psychological well-being of the individual, provide some sort of subjective pleasure to them, but they do not relate at all to the truth as God has disclosed it to us in His Word. The Lord's table is designed to teach us and to remind us of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It is an extremely simple ceremony. It involves only two elements, the bread and the cup. One would think that... One would think that a ritual that taught about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ would have to be very complex, something that would have to be very sophisticated. And yet, in the brilliance of God's plan, truth is usually communicated in very simple ways so that uh, everybody can grasp its meaning. The two elements in the Lord's table are the bread, which is unleavened bread, and the cup, which is Historically has been wine, but as I have pointed out in the past, due to the influence of legalistic American Baptists in the 19th century, there was a shift from wine to grape juice. So most churches have grape juice, although some still use wine. And in one case, as I've told you, uh, a church I know of in Dallas, they use both, but they never told anybody that. So, so even though there was two rings of grape juice and two rings of, of wine, uh, unless you had been there for a while, you didn't know which was which. And I went there with a friend, and we argued after afterward that he said, well, that was wine. I said, that wasn't wine. That was grape juice. And it was six months before we <laughs> learned what was really going on. But these two elements are designed to teach about the person of Christ in the bread and the work of Christ in the cup. The elements have their historical root in the Passover meal that was taken by the Jews the night before they were delivered from their slavery in Egypt. Therefore, the the doctrinal baggage, as it were, that these elements carry go back into ancient times and speak of the deliverance from slavery. In the same way, the elements of the Lord's table in the New Testament speak of the deliverance from slavery 
to sin, the work, the gracious work of God in providing a Savior who paid the penalty in full for us on the cross so that all we have to do is simply accept that for our own. And that is symbolized by eating and drinking the cup, just as anyone can eat or drink, anyone can believe. Eating and drinking pictures accepting or taking something for one's own, taking something into one's life. And that is the idea portrayed uh, in this element of faith in Christ, accepting Christ as one's own personal Savior. The bread is unleavened because leaven in the Scripture is used as a symbol for sin. And Jesus Christ was born sinless, as we've studied the last several weeks, in the virgin conception and virgin birth. He was born without sin. Therefore, he did not inherit the sin nature from Adam. Not having a sin nature, there was no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. And at no point in his life did Jesus Christ ever disobey the Father or act independently of the Father, and therefore there was no personal sin. That meant that he was completely qualified as the sinless God-man to go to the cross and die there as our substitute. He was qualified to be the mediator and to pay the penalty for our sins. The cup is a picture of blood. The redness of the wine is a picture of blood and therefore speaks of the sacrificial element of Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. In the Old Testament, there was blood shed by the uh, animal sacrifices. The lamb specifically that was sacrificed at Passover portrayed the Lord Jesus Christ so that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that shedding of blood was not effective for anything. It merely had ceremonial or ritual value. It was good it was good in its ritual teaching because it cleansed the people ritually, but not actually. They were not saved by that blood. Hebrews chapter nine tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The the sacrifice in the Old Testament was a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it was not a picture of his physical death, because physical death itself is not the penalty for sin. But physical death is perhaps the most horrible consequence of the penalty of sin, which was spiritual death, separation from God, who is the source of all life. So the physical death of Christ also is a representation of what took place spiritually between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. It was during that time that the heavens were darkened so that no one could look upon the horrible suffering that Jesus Christ endured during that time when he who knew no sin, the impeccable sinless Lord Jesus Christ, became sin on our behalf when God the Father in his justice imputed to Jesus Christ all the sins of humanity. And it was during that time that he paid the penalty for sin. And when that time was over, Jesus said, it is finished. Not only did Jesus say it was finished, but in a careful reading of John's account of the cross, John says, and when it was finished. So twice John emphasizes the fact that it was finished 
before Jesus Christ died, died physically. So what was finished? What was finished was the redemptive plan of God, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that was necessary for our salvation was completed before Jesus Christ died physically. So why did he have to die physically? Because physical death, as I stated earlier, is the most extreme consequence of all the consequences of spiritual death. And by dying physically, Jesus Christ would be raised physically from the dead, demonstrating that he had conquered all of the consequences of spiritual death. He had paid the penalty and conquered death, and that he was therefore accepted by God the Father as the perfect sacrifice, and that his sacrifice was indeed pleasing to God and accepted by his righteousness and justice. Now, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover meal, which looked back to that deliverance from slavery in Egypt for the Jews. He took two elements, the bread and the cup, and he invested them with new meaning, new meaning that would not only look back to what Christ did on the cross, but also look forward to his second coming, because Jesus had said that he would not drink wine again until he came to into his kingdom. So just as the Passover meal looked back to Jesus, I mean, looked back to the sacrifice or the, or the um, deliverance, of the Jews from slavery in Egypt and looked forward in anticipation to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The cup, the bread and the cup look back to what Christ did on the cross, but they also remind us that he is coming again in his kingdom at the second coming. So there's that twofold aspect. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that, that we are to uh, do this in a manner of fellowship with God. The only restriction on the Lord's table is that we are in fellowship with the Lord. That, of course, means that you must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't have to be a member of this church or a member of any other church or any denomination. It is open to anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to be in fellowship with God. Paul says that we are to examine ourselves, and the reason that the Corinthians were having trouble was because of their carnality. Many of them were sick and weary, and many of them slept. That is a euphemism for the sin unto death. So they had gone through divine discipline because they came to the Lord's table with wrong motives and out of fellowship. We come to the Lord's table in order to remember what he has done for us. Jesus said to do these things in remembrance of him. It reminds us on a monthly basis that all that we have and all that we are is due to the grace of God and the unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to give you the opportunity to prepare yourselves uh, for taking in the Word, to concentrate on what you know about the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross in your behalf. During this time, the deacons will come forward, and then we will return thanks for each element. Let's pray. Our Father, we now come to the Lord's table in order to remember your work on the cross on our behalf. Father, we thank you that we have so great a salvation that 
that there is nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it. There is nothing we can do to merit it. All we can do is accept it as a free gift. Father, we thank you for this first element, the bread, and what it teaches us. It reminds us that Jesus Christ was not merely a man, but he was the perfect God-man, that he was sinless, that he was completely qualified to go to the cross as our substitute, as our mediator, and to pay the penalty of sin on our behalf. It reminds us that he was true humanity, yet without sin. Now, Father, as we partake of the bread... We ask that uh, you keep us mindful of all that we have because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus Christ celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he came to the bread. He broke the bread and passed it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Let's return thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for the cup and what it represents in terms of the substitutionary spiritual sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're reminded that we could do nothing to pay for our own sins, and you devised a perfect plan by sending the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, to come to, the, come to earth to become incarnate through the virgin conception and virgin birth to grow up in his humanity and to go to the cross and there to suffer unimaginable pain and anguish as he bore in his body our sins. We thank you for that perfect sacrifice that we can add nothing to it, we cannot earn it, we cannot merit it, for everything was done that was necessary. Father, we thank you for this cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus Christ then took the cup. It was actually the third cup in the course of the meal called the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let me open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege to study your word, that your word was revealed over 2,000 years through many different means to many different men, and yet it contains one unified theme, and that is a focus on the provision of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, we thank you that we can come to your word and learn about this new life that we have through Christ, learn how to live this new life, and that it is through this unique Savior, this one-of-a-kind, only begotten, unique Son of God, that we have such a fantastic salvation and incredible spiritual life. We pray that as we study these things this morning that you would help us to understand and comprehend and grasp all that is involved, all that was involved in providing our salvation. Father, this time also we remember our nation, we remember our president, we remember our political and our military leaders that you would give them strength, that you would give them wisdom and skill in executing this plan in this war against Iraq as well as a war against terrorism. We recognize that it is not the strength of our arms that provides our security, but it is your will and your plan and your power that provides the security of this nation. We thank you for the freedoms that we have enjoyed and for the fact that this nation has a history of not only supporting Israel and supporting Jews, but also sending out missionaries. For this reason, you have preserved this nation for so many years, and we pray that you would continue to do so. Now, Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study today, that as we focus on the person of Jesus Christ, that you would give us a greater comprehension of what this means, and that this might elevate our understanding of all that we have in Christ and all that we are as believers. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We continue our study in 2 John, beginning this morning with a study of the ninth verse. 2 John, the ninth verse. The main issue seems to be, that we find here in 2 John, seems to focus on the body of the epistle from the fourth verse down to through the 11th verse. In verses 4 through 6, the focus is on walking in truth. Truth is a key concept in this epistle along with the idea of walking. Truth is mentioned in verse 1, truth twice, verse 2, and verse 4. We are to walk according to truth. We are to walk in truth. And of course, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So there is this interconnection between truth as absolute truth, capital T, and truth also as that which is embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave a new commandment to love one another, and that commandment and the fulfillment of that commandment to walk in that love for one another is not divorced in this passage from a correct understanding of who Jesus Christ is. So often today you get such superficial approaches to Christianity, and superficial approaches to love and to Jesus himself, that this connection is completely missed. Love, the love that is commanded in the New Testament, is a love that is articulated by Jesus Christ in terms of what he did at the cross. He said, we are to love one another as I have loved you. So to understand love, we know that we must start at the cross. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, we we're told this is love that he gave himself as a substitute for us. So whatever else you may think about love, if that love doesn't start with the cross, then it is a weak, impotent, 
eviscerated concept of love. As I'm saying again and again in various different studies that we're going through right now, we have to start from the Scriptures in our definition. It is always the Bible that provides the starting point. When we come to the Scriptures, the Bible is going to define for us the parameters of any discussion about any subject. When we go outside of those parameters, then what we're relying upon is autonomous or independent human reason or experience, and we're assuming that apart from revelation, we can come up with some sort of absolute truth. And this absolute, of course, is an autonomous absolute truth, and then we invariably use that to come back and evaluate the Scriptures. This was a problem in the ancient world just as it is a problem today. It often manifests itself, as we have seen, in in arrogance. And we saw two weeks ago the fact that people become impressed with their own uh, emotions. And then they use emotion as a criterion to evaluate the Word of God. This is particularly true in our current a cultural situation in early 21st century America where the average American is so uh, so caught up in postmodern thinking, been so brainwashed by postmodern thinking that personal experience and subjectivity becomes the criteria for any sort of interpretive activity. So when he interprets the Word of God, his frame of reference is his own personal emotions and how this impacts him, which destroys... Uh, all uh, the possibility of any sort of absolute meaning or universal truth. This is evident today, sadly, in the, the literature produced by historically conservative seminaries on the subject of Bible study and what is technically called hermeneutics. In fact, there are some that even interpret hermeneutics as what happens when the Word of God meets the experience of the individual believer. And that is a completely false notion of hermeneutics. It goes against all traditional understandings of hermeneutics. But see, what happens is when we become more impressed with our emotions or we become more impressed with our own thoughts or with some sort of intellectual activity than we are with the Word of God, then we're going to put the ultimate authority on either emotion or on thinking or some sort of intellectual system as the ultimate criteria for for evaluating the Word of God. And so then these thoughts and emotions are in effect... uh, In effect, they become idols. We become idolaters worshiping our own ideas and our own emotions rather than worshiping the God who is revealed in Scripture. Now, this is the same kind of thing that happened in the ancient world. We're studying this background in Corinth in our study in the morning service in 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthians coming out of a Greek background were were heavily indoctrinated and, and brainwashed, as it were, in, in their culture, we all are, whether you come from a culture of some sort of primitive society in Papua New Guinea or somewhere in, in uh, deep in the rainforest of, of Brazil or whether you come from a culture that is where you're indoctrinated in secular humanism and evolutionism in America or Europe, you still come to the Scripture with some sort of 
of cultural fix that is antagonistic to the Word of God, and it's the process of spiritual growth that after we're saved, we are to not be conformed to the world, Romans 12.2, which means we have to identify these structures of thought, these value systems, these ideas that are there from our culture, and we have to reevaluate them and rethink them in terms of what the Scripture says. Now, this is also true in the person of Christ. There's lots of different ideas that people have about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did. And unfortunately, too often in superficial religious activities, people think that if you just invoke the name of Jesus, that somehow everybody's talking about the same person. And you, you see this in commercials where you see advertise, you'll see this wonderful slick advertising campaign where you'll see somebody talking about how, so, how they've learned so much about Jesus, especially in his second testimony, and then that's just a segue into talking about the Book of Mormon. But the Jesus that the Mormons worship is not the Jesus of the Bible, despite their claims to the contrary, because the Jesus that the Mormons worship is the brother of Satan, the brother of Lucifer, and he is a creature. And, of course, their saying is, as, as God... Uh, as God is, we will be, as, as we are, God was. And so they have this idea that the, the Jesus that Mormons worship is a purely, originally a purely human that then becomes divine, and as he was human and became divine, so every human can eventually become divine, and you end up with a multiplicity of gods. It's a very subtle, pantheistic, system of religion, but you have to think. You can't say that just because uh, you know somebody named Bill Smith and I know somebody named Bill Smith that that Bill Smith is the same person. You have to look at their characteristics, their attributes, their qualities to see if they're the same person. So just because you stick the nomenclature of Jesus Christ on some idea or some notion or in some book doesn't mean it's the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And it is a Jesus Christ of the Bible who is the eternal second person of the Trinity, who is incarnate in human history. Now, that is a profound thought to think that it is the eternal God who has existed forever and ever and ever, who incarnates himself, limits himself. He is able to take himself as infinite and to... Spatially finite, uh, spatially restrict himself to become a finite human creature to join, uh, humanity to himself and enter in to human history. This was a doctrine that was very difficult for the early church to understand, and this is the background to the problem that we see in all three of these epistles of John, and it's, the problem was just beginning in the early church. It was a problem that came to be known as Gnosticism. Uh, that doesn't be, really reach its full flowering until the middle of the second century, around 130, 140, 150 A.D., and the time frame for these epistles is about 80 A.D., but the ideas are, are still present. And so, once again, John returns to this theme in verse 9. 
He's already introduced it in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not admit or acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This was the basic problem that you had in docetic Gnosticism, is they could not understand how God could become a man. Let me give you an idea of this. In, in, in Greek culture, and especially from the uh, thinking, the philosophy of Plato, you had the thinking about about ultimate reality. They knew that you can come up with the idea of a triangle, and if you're uh, particularly adept, which I am not, you can draw a triangle. You can take a straight edge, and you can draw out a triangle. And we all know what a triangle looks like, and we can spot a triangle. But if you were to look at the triangle, which I've just drawn on on the overhead, and if you were to take a a microscope. And if, even if I had used a straight edge to draw these lines, if you were to take a microscope and look at those lines, they wouldn't be straight. There would be all kinds of raggedy edges there. If you were to, even to try to draw a, a triangle on a computer, which I've tried to do, and it's almost impossible because of the way the pixels work, you just can't do it. Yet, nevertheless, we all have this idea of a triangle. But in reality, there is no such thing as a perfect triangle or an ideal triangle. But because, according to uh, Platonism, but because we all know what a triangle is and we can talk about a triangle, there must exist somewhere an ideal triangle. But in reality, there's no such thing as an ideal triangle, so the ideal can never exist in reality or in a material, physical dimension. The same thing would be true if we were talking about a chair, that that you have an idea of a chair and I have an idea of a chair, but there's no such thing as a perfect chair in physical reality. But because we all talk about chair, we all understand and have some ideal idea of a chair, and this is an ideal chair, and yet no ideal chair exists in reality. So since nothing ideal or perfect exists in reality, for God to be incarnate in the flesh in reality would mean that he would become less than perfect. See, what they've done is they've started with this abstract concept of the ideal, and they've brought that to Scripture to try to understand Scripture. And what we find is that in the early church, when you come to the, the, the first five centuries of Christianity, when these men are deeply and profoundly wrestling with what the Scripture teaches about Jesus Christ and who He is in His, in His undiminished deity and His true humanity and how that is joined together and, in, and how He lives his life and taking the, the scriptures for granted, what they really are having to do is to get rid of the influence of Greek philosophy and Greek thinking on their, their own mindset. Often what you read when you read the literature, the critics of Christianity, and they talk about the early centuries as the church articulates the doctrines related to the deity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Christ, the hypostatic union, they say, well, this is all the result of Greek thought. On the contrary, it is not the result of Greek thought. The reason they had to go through the process was to get rid of the influence of Greek thinking, of the cultural concepts that they brought with them when they came to the Scripture.
And as a result of that, there were many who became believers who were in the church for a while, but they were enamored and impressed with the intellectual thought forms of their culture and the Neoplatonic ideas that were pleasant, these docetic ideas. Now, the word docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, to appear. See, they, they said that if, if Christ was on, Jesus, or Christ was on the earth, he only appeared to be physical. He wasn't truly physical. He wasn't truly human. And we'll go into the dangers of the implications of that uh, as we go through this study. But this was a profound idea, and so they they would not admit that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. He was not a true human. He might be undiminished deity, but he wasn't true humanity. So John says at the end of verse 7, This is a deceiver and an antichrist, but watch out, be careful, look to yourselves, verse 8, that we do not lose the things that we worked for. In other words, if you succumb to false thinking about Jesus Christ, it will have a devastating impact on your Christian life. Because you see, Jesus handles the problems he faces in life, not through his deity. It would be real easy for Jesus, having spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting, for him to say, okay, now I'm through fasting, I'm done, let me solve the problems that I'm facing here. I'll just turn this stone into a nice pancetta, and we're going to just uh, have a very good meal here and have a good, uh, um, and enjoy ourselves. So uh, it, it, out of his deity, Jesus could have easily solved all of the problems that he faced, but he doesn't do that. He uh, relies upon his humanity and trusts in in the Lord to provide for him and to sustain him in the midst of his testing and in the midst of his temptation, which uh, which sets the pattern for every single believer. So that what we do is we are going to trust in and the Lord to solve our problems, and that Jesus then becomes a fantastic example and pattern for us in how we can face and handle any testing, any difficulty in life. So in verse 8 we read, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things that we work for, but that you, you may receive a full reward. Verse 9, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Now here we're going to get into some interesting exegetical issues to begin with, so we must uh, understand the original, what this means, before we can move on to application. So in verse 9 we read, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The verb translated transgresses is the Greek proago. Proago, which means to uh, be out of bounds. It has the idea of departure, to go forth, to proceed, to go too far. And here, what uh, Paul is saying, that's spelled P-R-O-A-G-O. And it has the idea of going uh, outside the bounds of truth. So whoever transgresses, who violates the bounds of truth, and does not abide... In the doctrine of Christ. It begins, the proago here is a present tense participle. It describes, it, it actually begins with the, uh, with the, ver, with the noun pas, or pronoun pas, all, and then you have an articular participle, a relative participle, all who transgress, 
and do not abide in the doctrine of Christ. And so we have a, a, an example here of what was called in Greek the Granville Sharp Rule, where you have uh, two verbs or two nouns, or in this case these participles are used as a noun, governed by one article and linked by a conjunction, and that shows that the two are connected and represent the same person. They transgress, they go out of bounds, they violate the standard of God by not abiding in the doctrine of Christ. The word translated abide is the word minnow. And we have seen minnow used again and again and again in John's writings to relate to the idea of staying in fellowship with God. So this is not talking about salvation. This is talking about the believer in his post-salvation life. Again, this is a a relative part uh, a, a participle that is used as a relative, and it's describing the believer who is out of fellowship and the believer who has rejected the what the scriptures teach about Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at this first word, proago, which means to go out of bounds or to go too far or to to uh, transgress or violate a standard. This word proago was one of the favorite words of the Gnostics. It also has other ideas such as to lead forth, to go before or precede. And in Gnosticism, they, they thought that they had the secret knowledge, the special insight into the ultimate realities in the, in the universe. And one of their key words to express this was that, was proago. They were leaders. They were the ones going forth. They were at the cutting edge of human thought. And so Paul picks, I mean, excuse me, John picks up this verb here and uses it in a sarcastic sense that whoever goes forth or transgresses, uh, they're really not going forth. They're not at the leading edge of anything. In fact, they're actually going out of bounds and violating uh, the truth of who Jesus Christ is. This reflects the same problem then as we have now that people reject the sufficiency of Scripture. You see, the biggest problem facing the church today is not people who is not that people don't believe in infallibility of Scripture or in the inerrancy of Scripture, but among those who believe, allegedly believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, they reject the sufficiency of Scripture. And so what they're constantly trying to do is to add something to Scripture. They're constantly impressed with the products of human thought, and they seek to reconcile the Bible to those products of human thought, whether it's Persian dualism, Greek philosophy, modern philosophy such as idealism or existentialism or postmodernism, whether it has to do with psychology, psychological systems, sociology, uh, evolutionism, historical geology, in politics, internationalism, globalism, socialism, utopianism, whatever it might be, they're trying to join and or reconcile the Bible to these various intellectual developments that are that that are produced independently of Scripture, and so by merging them together, you always end up with something else 
that is neither biblical nor is it true postmodernism or existentialism or whatever the philosophy might be. So what we have here is the expression that whoever uh, goes out of bounds and does not remain in the doctrine of Christ, does not remain with an orthodox Christology, does not have God. Now what exactly would he mean by this, that he doesn't remain in the teaching of Christ? And this is what the Scriptures teach about the person of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Christ. Here you have the Greek word didache, which is all that has been revealed through the Scriptures about Jesus Christ. The genitive of Christos indicates the content of the doctrine. And then he says, the person who does not abide in the teaching of Christ, the orthodox teaching in the Scriptures, does not have God. Now this doesn't mean he's not a believer. This does not mean that he is not a believer. For example, let's just hold your place here and turn back a couple of pages to 1 John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. John said the same thing in those verses. He says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Same problem with the docetics in First John. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. And he who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Notice you have the same word there for acknowledge, it's homo legeo, that you have over there in Second John chapter 7 in terms of confessing or acknowledging Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. The term having God is a term for fellowship. He's talking about believers and that if you deny Christ after salvation, you don't have God. You don't enjoy this ongoing relationship with God or fellowship with God. So fellowship with God isn't simply a matter of whether or not you've committed a sin, but if you have a heretical view of the person of Christ, you can't be in fellowship. No matter what, how much you confess, if you hold to a heretical view of Christ, you may confess your sin and be in fellowship, but it's for a microsecond because your heretical Christology is going to permanently keep you from ever maintaining fellowship for more than um, microseconds. So what is stated here by John is that whoever goes out of bound bounds and not abide or not remain in a orthodox biblical view of the person of Christ does not have fellowship with God. He then goes on to say he who abides this is the flip side of the of the principle he who abides or he who remains he who sticks with an orthodox view of the person of Jesus Christ has both the Father and the Son. He can remain in fellowship. The point is that no one can maintain fellowship with God who has a wrong Christology. You can't advance in the Christian life by being out of bounds doctrinally. If you have wrong doctrine, you cannot stay in fellowship. 
Staying in fellowship is momentum. Abiding is momentum. Abiding in Christ is staying in fellowship. The point is not simply recovering fellowship after we sin. The point is staying in fellowship, abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. This builds momentum so that we can advance towards spiritual maturity. But the believer who fails to maintain an orthodox view of Scripture becomes impressed with some uh, external system that is adding something to Scripture, whether it's evolutionism, whether it is sociology, whether it is uh, psychology. When you start adding that to Scripture, then you always destroy Scripture. Now, this was the problem in the ancient world. This was the problem of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, like the modern New Age movement or postmodernism, claimed to have something for everyone. In Gnosticism, you had the combination of Oriental dualism or Persian dualism with Hellenism, the Greek thought, Greek philosophy from uh, Plato, Aristotle, as well as the Epicureans and the Stoics. It also borrowed some ideas and terminology from Christianity and morality and uh, legal terminology from Judaism, and all of this was merged together. And maybe you were a person who preferred a little more of the ritual of Judaism. You like that tradition, so your form of Gnosticism would be heavy on that. Another person might be more impressed with uh, Plato or with uh, uh, the Stoics, so they would have a form of Gnosticism that was weighted more on that side. But their basic claim was that they had this superior knowledge of God. That was their key word. They had this greater knowledge of God. They had this secret knowledge of God, and that was the real key to spirituality. So they had this spiritual arrogance operating for them. And again, this was not derived from a, any system of revelation, but was based on philosophical speculation, or what I continue to call independent or autonomous reason or mysticism. And there was a tremendous amount of mysticism in Gnosticism as well, the idea that, that man can just intuit truth about God that he can just know it on his own. I'm always amazed at people who think they know exactly what God's like and exactly how God would deal with certain situations, and they've never read the Bible. They just somehow know this through some internal flash. Well, in the early church, this was a problem for the first 500 years of Christianity, dealing with the impact of Greek thought on the church and the impact of Greek thought on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The first major problem that came along was the problem of Arianism. Arianism was named for an, uh, a presbyter or elder in the Alexandrian church in, in uh, North Africa and Egypt, and Arius taught that there was a time when Christ was not. God is eternal, but Christ was actually a creature. If you look at the chart, the timeline begins uh, for Christ. The arrow begins in eternity past. But there is a time when Christ was not. That was Arius' slogan. There was a time when Christ was not. Now, the modern version of Arianism is Jehovah's Witness. And they hold the same view that Christ is essentially a creature. So the early church had to struggle with this issue of whether or not Jesus is a creature or if he is the creator. So at the very root 
of Arianism is the problem and the rejection of the creator-creature distinction. This is going to tie in with what we're studying on Wednesday night in our study on, uh, on Genesis. In contrast to Arius, Athanasius, who was the uh, bishop of Alexandria, argued that Christ had to be God. Because if you worship Christ and he is not God, then you are worshiping a creature and blaspheming. So you, Christ cannot be a creature. He must be the creator which and identified with the creator. And this is how it came across in the Nicene Creed when they finally tri- articulated this. In the Nicene Creed, well, first of all, let me see if I did this. Okay, the first creed here is the Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you grew up in a Roman Catholic setting or in some other churches. You may have recited this on a regular basis. I'm going to focus in on just the second paragraph, which focuses on the person of Christ. But I want to read the first line because uh, to emphasize one point. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Notice it starts with creation. It doesn't start with Jesus. It starts with the Creator. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The starting point is creation. Then in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, in that paragraph in the Apostles' Creed, which is first articulated towards the end of the second century, early part of the third century, you have a summation of basic Christology. Basic Christology focuses on the pre-incarnate Christ. He's our only, he is his only begotten son. It focuses on the incarnation, the the means of the incarnation through the virgin conception and virgin birth, that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Then you have a focus on what he does on the cross, his work. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into Hades. That's when he announces to the fallen angels and to Old Testament unbelievers that he has accomplished redemption, which is the seal of their judgment. And then you have the resurrection. The third day he rose again from the dead and his ascension. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and the second coming. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So these are the basic elements of Christology. The pre-incarnate Christ, virgin conception and birth, the person of Christ in terms of the hypostatic union and and. Uh, the incarnation, his work on the cross, resurrection, present session, and future rule and reign. After the battle with Arianism, you have this developed a little more precisely. Let's just look at the second. Um, well, yeah, let's just sec- look at the second line. Well, look at the first line. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and now it's of all things visible and invisible. Before, it was just maker of heaven and earth. They add the line, maker of all things visible and invisible. Why do you think they did that? Because in Gnosticism, you have this God who then creates all these emanations from himself 
that are themselves become like like different gods in Gnosticism, and then somewhere down the line there's this this emanation of Christ. So by adding visible and invisible, you're emphasizing that God is the maker of everything, including all of these so-called uh, these spirits that were coming along uh, through Gnosticism. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Notice how it adds that. He's not simply the only begotten Son of God. He is begotten of the Father before all worlds, before everything. This is an assault on Arianism. He is God of God. In some translations, it's true God of true, true, true God of true God in the next phrase. God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, or true God of true God. That means He is full, undiminished deity. He is begotten, not made. He is not a creature, as Arius said, that had a starting point in time. He is eternally begotten. It's a technical term to describe the relationship between the eternal first person of the Trinity and the eternal second person of the Trinity, and that he is a being of one substance with the Father, one essence with the Father. He is undiminished deity, and by whom all things were made. He is the creator of all things. So this is a very important articulation of who Jesus Christ is, and it is to get rid of these ideas that have come in, from Greek philosophy. So these creeds were developed as sort of theological filters so that they could understand uh, more precisely what the Scriptures reveal. Now, this is a description of the Incarnation, why the Incarnation is important. Now, other religions have pseudo-incarnations. In Hinduism and in Oriental Myths and, and some other Asian religions, you have these pseudo-incarnations, but it's, they're not the incarnation of a creator God. It's sort of the incarnation of a force, but it's not a personal, infinite God. In some cases, he might be personal, but he's not infinite or transcendent. In other cases, he may be transcendent just like a force, but he is not, but he is not personal. So be careful when you use the word incarnation. The Bible has a very precise definition. It is the eternal God becoming man. He doesn't just sort of uh, uh, become or, or, or appear in different in different forms. Now, lest you think, see, when I go through this, it's real easy for you to think, well, this is just some sort of abstract theological exercise. But see, these are men who died for this. Now, you don't die for just abstract intellectualism. You die for something that has real significant impact, and that is the thrust here. Let's look at a couple of passages like Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Same principle. Don't give up on this unique doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You see, we have a high priest 
who can fully identify with every situation, every problem, every difficulty that we go through in life because he is fully human. See, if he just appeared to be human, then we don't have a God that can identify with us at all. And there's no basis for relationship or fellowship. You see, what makes it possible in Christianity for man to have fellowship with God is that we have a God who who incarnates himself as a man, and so in one person you have the creator and the creature united together in the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, if that's not true, then there is no basis for any kind of fellowship with God. There's no basis for any real connection with God. Another passage to look at, uh, is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is talking about Christ. He offered up prayers and supplications with cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. This is a real human being who is going through real struggles and real difficulties. There's no sin there, but he is fully human and facing the same kinds of problems that we face. He was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He had to go through a learning process just like any other, just like any human being. Does God learn? No, God doesn't learn. God is omniscient. He simultaneously knows all the knowable. He is never surprised. He never learns anything new. He never... Uh, uh, advances in knowledge, but Jesus in his humanity learned. He had to go through this life as a true human being. He knew fully in his experience as a human what pain is. Now, let's contrast that with Islam. Does Allah know what pain is? No. Do any do the gods of uh, of the other religions know what pain is? No, for only it's the biblical God who becomes a man and gets his fingernails dirty. It's the biblical God who gets tired and sweaty and has to take a bath, has to take a shower, goes out and works in the carpenter shop all day long and comes in tired, physically exhausted in the evening, sits down, eats a meal, and then falls asleep before the evening is over with. He is a God who understands Mankind, But see, in docetism, this humanity is just an, an illusion. It's not real humanity. And so in that concept, then there's no uh, real relationship between God and man. Now, one of the big problems that you see that comes along is that people have difficulty understanding how can God become a man? How can God become a man? And so this really exposes the whole pro- one of the whole problems with human human reasoning. But before we get there, I want to give you some reasons why Jesus had to be a man. First of all, he had to be a man to generate real historical righteousness. He had to produce real righteousness by the tr- genuine volitional acts of a real human being. 
the New Testament revelation requires that real humanity produce real historical righteousness to as a basis for qualification to go to the cross. So if he wasn't a real human being, he couldn't generate creaturely righteousness, and it is that generation of creaturely righteousness through a human Savior that is imputed to man so that we can be saved. First of all, and secondly, priestly qualifications. Priestly qualifications. He can't be a priest without being human. He can't be a mediator without being fully human. Third, to be our representative is a second Adam. You can't be a second Adam unless you're fully human. It's the first Adam was. Fourth, his absolute, or fourth, his absolute revelation of God. Jesus had to be God so that when I see Jesus, I see God. If he is just a man, then he doesn't present to me what God is like. He is the full expression of God according to John chapter 1. And then fifth, he had to be able to be fully man to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Now, Philip Schaff, who is one of the greatest church historians, makes the following comment related to the importance of understanding the full incarnation of Christ. He says a half-docetic incarnation, regarding a half-docetic incarnation, the church could not possibly accept such a, such a view of a mutilated and stunted humanity of Christ, despoiled of its royal head, and, and such a merely partial redemption as this inevitably involved. The incarnation of the Logos is his becoming completely man. It involves, therefore, his assumption of the entire undivided nature of man, spiritual and bodily, with the sole exception of sin, which in fact belongs not to the original nature of man, but has entered uh, from without. So to be a full Redeemer, Christ must also be fully man. So now we come to the problem of how does he become this fully man? There was one solution, Apollinarius, where man's, where Jesus is fully man in terms of a physical body, but he doesn't have a human soul. He has a, uh, a divine soul. So that presents, uh, that, that was more like a Gnostic problem where he doesn't have, he's not fully, uh, fully human. The problem is that in these early some of these early solutions like Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, they really started with the wrong, uh, at the wrong starting point to answer uh, the question. You've heard me say many times, don't answer every question that people ask you. Because a question predetermines the path that you're going to have to go down sometimes in answering the question. You know the old question, have you quit beating your wife yet? No matter how you answer the question, you're in trouble. So you have to think about where your starting point is. And what happened in the early church is their starting point was too often some sort of autonomous human viewpoint uh, reasoning. For example, in Nestorianism, Nestorius was the second person to try to articulate the, the relationship of the deity and humanity in Christ. He starts with the uh, wrong question. 
he thinks he starts from the issue of here you have Christ and he claims to be God. How is it that God uh, can really enter into and become become a man? So his starting point his starting point is how does the divine nature unite with the human nature? After that nature, that is, after human nature has already come into existence. See, the assumption is that, that Adam sins, now you've got a problem, so God decides, okay, now I've got to become man. This is a problem liberalism comes up to, is they can't, they can't understand the incarnation because they're trying to figure out how to take this big God and, and scrunch him down and place him inside a human body, and what they get is this sort of crippled, bent up, God that that they can't figure out how he gets into a human body, and the the box is too confining. But they don't start at the right spot. You have to start with Genesis. See, Genesis tells us in Genesis 1 that God creates man in the image and likeness of God. See, God doesn't come along when Adam sins and go, oops, he sinned, now what do I do? God in eternity past knew that Adam would sin. He creates a creature who is in his image and his likeness so that it will be possible for the infinite God to uh, incarnate himself in this creature. He designs the body. He designs the soul. He designs the whole creature so that it will be possible for him to incarnate himself into this creature. This also relates to ideas such as the inerrancy of Scripture, that, that people have problems with that because they start, their starting point is with man and not with God. And the result is always trying to, to take God and fit him into some sort of, of restricting box. But when you realize that history is more than just, just the superficial events of history, but that God has a plan in back of history and that God designed man and designed the events in history in such a way that he would be able to reveal himself uh, through, the, through, the incarnate, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ as well as to reveal himself uh, through men, then it, you realize how easy this is. It's not difficult for God to reveal himself through through his creatures, the problem, part of the problem that you hear see in some of this is, um, and, and especially in a third view, which was called monophysitism, the idea that Jesus just had one nature, where just sort of a blend, like they use the illustration of mixing vinegar and water. You come up with just vinegarized water or diluted vinegar. It's not, it's not vinegar anymore, and it's not water anymore. Uh, part of this was indicated back in the 60s, if you remember the Beatles uh, song, George Harrison's song, uh, My Sweet Lord, where he has a chant in there that alternates between Hallelujah and Holy Krishna. You know, all gods are one. They're really the same. Krishna is the same as God. God's the same as Krishna, and everything is, is the same. But this is not what Scripture teaches, and, and we have the... Uh, the, the, the final statement of Christology came across in the Chalcedonian Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. That's backing up to the Nicene Creed. Let me skip. Here we go. We then, following the Holy Fathers, 
all with one consent. In other words, this is a, a unanimous opinion from those who have been studying the, the Scriptures. Teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, that is, undiminished deity, and also perfect in manhood, true humanity, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, that is, rational soul, human soul, and body, consubstantial with us according to manhood. In other words, he is identical to us in humanity. In all things like unto us without sin. And then on the other hand, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. That is, he has an eternal existence in his deity. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to, to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, they don't blend, unchangeably, they, they, when, when the incarnation occurs, it doesn't change the deity, it doesn't change humanity into something else, indivisibly, they're not separable, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus becomes incarnate, and in the incarnation he provides the basis for relationship with God. See, it goes back to the Trinity. If you don't have a Trinitarian understanding of God, then you don't have an ultimate basis for communication, for love, for social life. If you have a solitary monotheism like you have in Islam, then what you have throughout all of eternity is a solitary God. Nobody to talk to. No communication. No social life, as it were. No love, because there's no object for love. So in Islam, what you develop from that, and this gets into some heavy philosophy, but these people were, were in the early church, were profound thinkers, and they understood the implications of what they were saying. If you stick with really what was more of the Greek idea, where you would come up with this solitary monotheism, then you have no ultimate basis in terms of, let me draw this line here, Above this line, you're going to have ultimate meaning. This is metaphysics. This is ultimate reality. Up here, if you have solitary monotheism, then there is X, no social life, X, no communication, and no love. All you have is a purely authoritarian system where the God has to create creatures in order to have any kind of relationship, and all you have is this this one one directional authoritative flow. He is totally dependent, and the God becomes dependent on creatures in order to have a relationship with them. In contrast, in a Trinitarian system, where you have a God who is eternally three persons, not three gods, three persons, where the Father can love the Son, the Son loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father. They have communication. 
They have an eternal divine society. So there is the basis for relationship. There is basis for personal connection. There is basis for communication. All of this then, then when you get down into the created order, you have the basis for uh, society. You have the basis for, see, you have distinct persons. So you have diversity in the Godhead. You have the basis for, for diversity. But at the same point, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are also equal. So you have the basis for equality at the same time that you have diversity. So you can develop things like, 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 and this impacts Western culture, so that Western civilization has the development of certain kinds of mu- music where you have a harmony, you have diversity in the music, but it produces one basic theme. You, you have games, you have sports, you have different activities, you have politics that develop in the Western world that come out of an understanding because later on in the English church you have Puritan theologians who are thinking like this and they realize that in society you have, you have multiplicity and equality and diversity but at the same time you can also have, have unity and they're not opposed to one another and so you have the development of a true thinking of society where there can be genuine equality and diversity at the same time where you, without destroying a concept of authority but you have authority or the oneness idea on one side and plurality on the other. Think about the state. In most historical circumstances, you either had the state, which is the idea of oneness or, or, or unity, versus the people, which is the diversity. But in the Trinity, you have both oneness and multiplicity. This develops in Western culture. Now you get over into Islam. Islam has no concept like this. So what you have is this unidirectional authority that can only be expressed in terms of some sort of totalitarianism. You never develop the respect for all of the individuals because you always end up in this kind of a structure. What The point I'm making is that this kind of stuff is profound, it's deep, it'll turn your brain inside out. It's the foundation for all spiritual thought. This is not just, oh, well, isn't that nice? That's what the Bible teaches about Christ. He's both God and he's both man. This has implications for how you think about everything in society. And it has historically worked its way out. I was just reading a book called uh, What, What Went Wrong?, by Bernard Lewis, who is a uh, scholar of, of Islam and, and Arab thought. He's retired now. He's the, I think he's the uh, emeritus professor of uh, Near e- Middle Eastern Studies from, from Princeton. And he, he points all this out, but he has no idea why it developed this way in history. And it develops this way in history. And Islamic culture always leads toward totalitarian governments and dictatorships, and this is why in the home you ha- the man is the autocrat and the woman's nothing but a slave, is because in their ultimate view of reality you have this solitary monothe- monotheism, you have this solitary God who can't communicate, who can't have a, have a social relationship, and everything is just, is just this unidirectional, totalitarian, tyrannical authority 
that, that takes place, and there's no basis for diversity. But in Christianity, you have diversity in the home. You have man and the woman are both created in the image and likeness of God so that there is an authority structure in terms of role relationship, just as the father is the head and the son, car- the father's the planner and the son carries out the, the, uh, the plan of salvation, there, is, there are functional, there's functional subordination. But there is not essential or a subordination of essence. There's not an essential subordination so that they're equal. You have equality and diversity at the same time. You have uh, unity and distinctiveness. So you can, you can have this kind of, and that, that works itself out in, in Western culture in many different ways from politics to recreation to economics. And it is this that makes a difference. So we look at Christianity. It's not just this superficial, oh, how I love Jesus. Let's get saved. We're going to go to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? But this changes everything about your view of, uh, of society and, and the creature, all because in the one, one person, Jesus Christ, there are two natures. He combines the creator and the creature in one nature, just as, and the early church understood this, that just as there are three persons in one essence in the Godhead, you can have two natures that are unmixed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we worship a unique Savior, and this provides the basis not only for salvation, but also for the spiritual life, because it is this fully human Jesus, who is able to face all the problems and difficulties of life and resolve them in dependence upon God, and that is the, that is the prototype of the spiritual life. This is why John says that holding to a correct view of Christ is essential to having fellowship with God. And trust me, you can't have a correct, if you don't have a correct view of Christ, you can't have a correct view of love. And if you can't have a correct view of love, it's going to impact every relationship that you have. So don't go away thinking, oh, we went through all this stuff on Arianism and Apollinarianism and the creeds again, and it just gets too abstract. I'm trying to show you that this isn't just sort of abstract historical stuff that happened in the early church, but it has profound implications for everything that we do, either individually or in terms of of, uh, marriage or even in terms of society and culture. The Holding a correct Christology is not optional. It is imperative with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to look at the person of Lord Jesus Christ to understand who he is and to appreciate more fully all that he has done for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their uh, eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for every sin in human history. God the Father imputed to him uh, every single sin, and it was paid for. It's paid in full. So it's not a matter of what you do. It's not a matter of your morality. It's not a matter of of ritual. It's not a matter of making some bargain with God. It is simply a matter of accepting the free gift of Jesus Christ by trusting in Him and Him alone for salvation. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to 
think about the things we study today, to meditate on them and to come to a greater appreciation of the the depths and the uh, profound nature of your plan of redemption for human history. We pray these in Christ these things in Christ's name. Amen.